Welcome back again to Red Star Radio. You'll know from our coverage of the pandemic that uh, it's a very exciting time to be alive in the wonderful world of bourgeois philosophy these days, especially if you can sell um, a book on the back of the pandemic uh, claiming to have found a new way forward for humanity based upon it. Uh, The latest uh, guy to try that uh, no, it's not my old favourite Paul Mason, nor is it my old friend Owen Jones. It's uh, an American character named Benjamin Bratton. And we're going to be discussing his book today with uh, a returning guest today. So, Layla, who do we have as our mystery reviewer coming in today? So, Dr. Elena Lang is a senior researcher and lecturer of Japanese studies at the University of Zurich and a repeat uh, guest of the show. Very happy to have her back. I'm happy to be back. Yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> um, before you were kicked off Twitter, um, I think everyone was getting really excited to hear your full reviews. So uh, now you're having this podcast to give us the full scoop of the little tidbits of analysis that you were dropping uh, before you were unceremoniously banned for speaking the truth about <laughs> Benjamin Braddon's uh, political orientation. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, Twitter is is problematic in its own ways, but um, it's just interesting to see how this whole thing will evolve. Because I don't think this is an issue that's gonna just be a Twitter, Twitter thing or Twitter war. And um, and I'm not I'm not in a position to, um, and I don't want to. This is not about being you know personal in any way. I'm excited to talk about the book, and I'm excited to talk about the arguments of the book with you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, so, you know, um, I'm going to go ahead and just congratulate you for being off Twitter because (laughs) it's, uh, as you say, it's not not a a good place. (laughs) And uh, I think the value is, you know, most of the time neutral, but... Um, a significant amount of the time negative yeah. so it's good that you're off of it you have more time to read more yeah. time to think and write yeah. so mazel tov <laughs> to you I don't know how to say thank you in, in Hebrew but um, yeah thank you <laughs> <laughs> okay so maybe we'll get started with this first question here all right so this is going to be a general question so we'll have a go through of the outline and the thesis of Benjamin Braddon's book called Revenge of the Real. It was just published a few months ago, 2021. Uh, Just for the audience members who haven't yet read the book. Yeah, so actually it was one of the funnier books I've read in the past years that didn't intend to be funny. Um, Anyway, um, it had me laughing uh, out loud in many passages because it's so absolutely unbelievable what uh, what Breton says, and we get to that. And but you know, just more generally, saying something in me wished until the last moment that this was an actual satire. But um, the sweet release never came. <laughs> so aside from the contents of the book, so which we we're going to talk about at length, um, it was it was very curious for me to read it and I asked myself who writes like that because I, I thought I read a memo from the Citibank HR department or something like that. It was so full of terrible management speak and I give you a few gems later. So not only with regards to the content but already the 
yeah, I guess, cringe-worthy way he writes and tries to be funny, especially those passages. They made this book an offense to any normal person's intelligent on the one, intelligence on the one hand, but it was also really, really hilarious to read. It was a hilarious book to read. And there have already been very critical responses to the book. And I recommend you all to check out Nicholas Hausdorff's review called The Revenge of the Unreal. And check out Nicholas' work more generally. He's a very smart guy. So, okay, let's give Bratton's book a little more attention. Um, the basic thesis of the book is this. Because the Western response to the COVID-19 pandemic proved to be a failure, and I think we can all agree on that, Bratton proposes a vision for a post-pandemic society based on a technocratic and totalitarian global positive biopolitics, as he calls it, modeled after authoritarian regimes in Asia. Say, for example, Singapore is an example that comes up quite a few times. Taiwan is another example, or even China. So there are many facets to this. If you want to contextualize Britain within an intellectual tradition, there's a strong bias towards post-structuralist and post-colonial anti-Marxism. So there's this post-colonial idea of the failure of the West to adequately react to humanity's crisis. There's a strong topic there. And it also betrays uh, Breton's culturalist roots. And he says very openly on page six, this book is a critique of Western political culture. So you know where the journey is headed. On the other hand, he's surely in there with the accelerationists and techno-optimists. So him being featured in Novara Media is, is not very surprising. So furthermore, he advocates a rethinking of the concept of society. So definitely no longer as determined by the relations between individuals, but um, he wants to replace this, this view of society with something he calls an epidemiological view of society. He thinks this, this vision, this epidemiological view of society has already been implemented with the news coverage of COVID. And he wants to give this idea greater acceptance. So, for instance, um, I quote from Bratton's book, toward that positive biopolitics, we can see how quickly people learn to see society as epidemiology does, not as self-contained individuals entering into contractual relationships, but as a population of contagion nodes and vectors. Okay, this is his, his vision. And or listen to this. He says on page 35, the pandemic has made it easier to see oneself more as a node in a biopolitical network to which one is responsible than as an autonomous individual whose sovereignty is guaranteed by free will. Okay, so. This is his view of society, but of course, this um, epidemiological view of society is no view of society at all. Epidemiology has no view of society because it looks as, uh, at, at different structures than um, sociology would. You know, so it is a, at, at best this is a marrying of Darwinist principles, which he openly supports with social progress. It's, in other words, something known as social Darwinism. 
there's strong social Darwinist tendencies in his in his uh, uh, thesis and arguments. And because he embraces such a view, he proposes an what he calls an immunological commons as the implementation of positive biopolitics with an authoritarian state as sovereign, which he also says is the rule of competence or competency. So I quote what he has to say about that. He says on page 65, one of the things the pandemic has revealed is that the absence of control authority and competency in the West is very real and dangerous. So the absence of control is, is and the absence of authority is dangerous, he says. Post-pandemic politics must revive its legitimacy, capacity and effectiveness. This will be possible only to the extent that the paths toward an inclusive, equitable, positive biopolitics are open and active. Those politics will need to remap and deconflate identity, subjectivity, status, and agency from one another in order to build the co-immunological uh, commons. So beware of the language. He, he uses inclusive and equitable, which is typical HR speak. And, um, and he uses you know, this kind of language to, to, uh, to provide his vision. And listen to this, too, from the end of the book, he says, the power of a positive post-pandemic biopolitics, he really loves his alliterations, doesn't he, exists instead in an incipient biopolitical stack, hardware, <laughs> software, wetware. It is comprised of technologies, processes, policies, and parameters from different actors in a highly contested multipolar geopolitical condition, and so on and so on. I mean, who writes like that, right? So it's not just the, the actual argument he makes for this authoritarian biopolitical state. It's also the way he, he formally, he puts this idea forward, which I find um, interesting to say the least. So it's not just this managerial top-down biopolitical and downright techno-totalitarian version of a society um, that he proposes as a, actually, this is a neoliberal desideratum. He very openly announces the need to overcome um, principles like democracy, universal freedom, which is also the freedom of the individual, autonomy, especially bodily autonomy, physical autonomy, the idea of the human as a subject, and emancipation of any kind. There is no talk about free society in this book, about emancipation, about progress, nothing at all. But what's interesting is that all these denunciation of the human as a subject are rooted, very much rooted theoretically, in this, in this post-colonial romanticization of non-Western, mostly Asian traditions. And in this case, I have to say, I know what I'm talking about since my background is in Japanese studies. And um, I've read the whole tradition of this, this reactionary thought. And, and Breton is a clear example of this. Um, just to give you more of an idea what, what, what he stands for, what this book stands for and, and how anti-democratic yeah, anti it, it, it in fact is, um, on, on page 61 he says, the human world is an epidemiological and informational entanglement. This is also a word that post-colonials love, entanglement, everything's an entanglement. We need to stop making people crazy 
with the demand for total individual autonomy, right? And stop making people crazy as in italics. So, I mean, this is, this is quite interesting, you know. So he embraces this, this, the dominance and necessity to follow the rule of objective constraints. And, um, and he embrace, embraces the submission to the dictatorship of technocracy. And um, so a large part of the volume is dedicated to denouncing critics of the implementation of this kind of biopolitical technocracy, which is, by the way, already here. So this is not a vision for a post-pandemic world, but please watch the news in Australia, watch the news from New Zealand. We are already here. So he directs his... his um, yeah, his spite and criticism a few times in the book against a, a German professor of technology who is very skeptical of the measures. And of course, George Agamben, the Italian philosopher. But I would say his main enemy are the people. He is on a mission to denounce people who do not comply to, to this, new, this new governance, what he calls governance. And that, of course, includes populists, Trumpists, what he calls conspiracy theorists, and basically, you know, the trash that believes Fox News. And um, this leads to some very interesting passages in the book where his disdain and spite uh, against what he calls a deranged social movement becomes very clear. So he says on page 62, um, Early in the pandemic, this deranged social movement staged massive anti-lockdown protests events in London and Berlin, where a cacophonous menagerie, libertarians, anti-vaccine celebrities such as Robert Kennedy Jr., Steve Bannon troops, actual Nazis, New Age yoga instructors, anarchists, health freedom advocates, conspiracy theorists in the mold of David Icke and Piers Corbin, and possibly some of your friends and acquaintances together found common cause. So he's, he's full of, um, yeah, I, I would even say revenge fantasies against, you know, normal people who are very afraid for their, for their um, civil rights and freedoms, right? And it gets so funny here too, um, then he says, you know, these, these people are all, you know, conspiracy theorists and what is going on is, is, is a regularization of these ideas into a global folk politics with real and ugly consequences. And then he says, just, just ask U.S. Capitol Police, right? He's very, he's really worried about U.S. Capitol Police. And yeah, well, you can say he's <laughs> definitely in love with state um authoritarianism while other people want the wrong kind of totalitarianism he advocates the right kind um yeah and i think this would be well a wrap up of the book that i can give you here hmm. yeah I, I definitely like you were saying uh, i thought that the book was very much an apologia for the current state of things in a lot of ways or at least what radden thinks is the current state of uh the world um, it, it wasn't so, I think that the book kind of sells itself as this like brilliant new um, conceptualization of how we can move forward um, after all of the brilliant new, you know, so-called brilliant new methods of social control and technologies had been put into place during this pandemic. 
But I was reading it and I was like, you know, you're just you're just making up excuses for the kind of uh, excesses that states have been able to implement during this pandemic in terms of yeah, yeah, yeah. surveillance and um, social control. Yeah, exactly. Well, the only thing that struck me from like an overall impression is the fact that, first of all, as you said, um, he's not doing anything new. Um, and as you said, Elena, like this isn't like a radical break from what might be termed like um, sort of post-89 mm -hmm. neoliberal thought. This mm -hmm. is, in fact, like a complete continuation of like the arguments of Francis Fukuyama mm -hmm. and even the arguments of like, well, he reminded me a lot of like um, Thomas Friedman and like idiots like that from like the 90s and 2000s talking about the interconnected world. The only, um, the, the difference being yeah. that like Fukuyama and the likes of Friedman had a tinge of optimism in their in their, in their prophecies. Um, Bratton doesn't have any of that. Like his book is very much rooted in like the post the reality of like post crash two thousand eight um, capitalism in the advanced Western nations. And it's so nihilist. He, it's a complete yeah. nihilistic book. Yeah, it's a it's nihilistic because of it. It's it's a product of like a time when it's not possible to give the the, the sunny optimisms of a Fukuyama or a Friedman, mm -hmm. and he also he gazes with envy at like China, Taiwan, Singapore. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. that's what like um, Western idiot Western politicians and intellectuals who follow them around have been doing since the early nineties. Um, mm -hmm. They've been. I mean, I remember sitting in a um, a, a class in my undergraduate degree with some lunatic lecturer going on about how uh, you know in fi in fifty years Asian values will be our values, um, which again yeah, yeah. misunderstands what the whole Asian values thing is and also <laughs> misunderstands the like the fact that like the reason why capitalism in like Southeast Asia looks so different to the capitalism in the the original capitalist nations um mm -hmm. because Bratton is very shallow like much mm -hmm. like the people who are you know going to Singapore looking at it and going oh wow that's amazing um mm -hmm. he looks at it and thinks well that must be the future and so we've yeah. got to find a way to make it into it. And but it, it, what struck me is it's it's a very shallow book. Um, and he spends, I think, he has to write pretentiously to just cover up like how shallow he is. And he reminded me again of like um, every, my old friend Paul Mason. Like he really isn't that much. It's like it it's like um, neoliberal fantasias, but now it's plunged into a into a sort of dystopic frame. Um, that and that's why you get like his embrace of what you know in old Marxist terms used to be called Bonapartism, because that's mm -hmm, been right. the trend since at least 1990 in the Western capitalist nations. It's towards more and more power being consolidated inside executive branches, uh, yeah. parliaments becoming a joke, and the the exercise of power being done by uh, directly through the offices of prime ministers and presidents or by bureaucracies. And yeah. with any kind of democratic oversight completely gone or very, very limited. Okay. So I maybe you can just go to the next question. This is something I'm super interested in hearing from Elena about and also mm -hmm. Alex. But um, Elena, especially as a value theorist, um, I'd love to get your view. This is something that really struck out to me in this book. Um, so the book advances a few actionable items uh, throughout um, his writing, Braddon is suggesting various ways that 
we can bring about his uh, techno dystopia, utopia, I guess, depending on what side you're on. And uh, one of the things that he advances throughout the book is that we must allow objective reality, the objective reality of biology to take over the subjective preferences of individuals. And he frames this argument primarily uh, by insisting on the truth of the virus and how we can't ignore the truth of the virus. But he also mentions climate change, of course. Um, and he portrays everyone, as you were saying, and as anyone who has any doubts or denies certain aspects about COVID-19 um, as anti-society and anti-rationality. He goes on yeah. to develop a whole chapter yeah. actually entitled Ethics of Being an Object, um, which which is an ethical yeah. framework. <laughs> this is quite this is quite unbelievable. I mean, but you just let me get let, let me dive into the question. So the, the the existence of objective reality hasn't really been denied by any philosopher since Plato, except maybe the 18th century philosopher George Berkeley, and not even he would reject uh, would have rejected the existence of things. You know, is is like this is not a dispute about whether objective reality exists or not. I mean, no one on either side of this debate, pro or against COVID measures, holds this position. So the, the dispute is not about uh, objective reality. This is about something entirely different, na namely whether we should be treated and treat each other as subjects with vital interests in our and our fellow humans' bodily integrity respect for one's potential at development mm -hmm. and one's basic needs, in other words, as ends in ourselves, or, and this is the position that, that Breton puts forward, whether we should view ourselves as objects, as subordinates without autonomy, as lifeless pods that can be treated like things, objects or means to mm -hmm. an end. And this latter understanding would also include And, you know, you have to think these thoughts to the end. And I don't think he did that. And that's why I think Alex was absolutely right to say how shallow this book is, because this idea, ethics of being an object, would also include that torture, murder, and medical experimentation cannot be criminalized. You know, if, if you make this, this vision, uh, if you implement this vision really uh, in law, Because you cannot murder or torture what is seen as a thing, as an object, right? And this, uh, you've guessed it, is exactly how the Nazis have first ideologically dehumanized and then actually killed or exterminated in their language millions of Jews. Because Jews were not seen as humans, they were de facto objectified, you know? And that's why medical experimentation With, with Jews at that time was so widely employed. So the first step was declaring them <laughs> with the ethics of being an object, you know. <laughs> so I'm a strict Kantian here. Treat other people as ends in themselves, not as means to an end. And Bratton is the opposite. He wants us to view ourselves as objects. He wants voluntary submission to a thinking of the treatment of humans as means to an end. Say, better surveillance, better measurements, better model abstractions, and so on. And this would also include torture. If we see ourselves as objects, not as sentient beings, we have no reason to believe in individual pain, right? And here, this argument becomes 
his argument, Breton's argument becomes circular because if we see ourselves as objects in order to build a governance of more technological solutions to healthcare, then why have we made ourselves into objects in the first place, right? Which aim does this improvement serve if people cannot subjectively enjoy their personal, mental, and physical health and individually relish the feeling of wholesomeness? You know, this is, I think this is where the argument eats itself. Why turn us all into lifeless pots when the aim is not to turn us into lifeless pots, right? So because you mentioned, Leila, you mentioned my interest in, in value theory and the question of objectivity and real abstraction or so, there's, there's, this other, there's this other problem with, with Bratton's argument. And that, um, that is directly related to his, um, to, to the, his theoretical underpinnings, the concept of objectivity or objective reality itself, which is related to Marx's theory of fetishism. So um, just to digress a little bit here, on, my, on one of my substacks, I have published a piece that's called um, The Myth of Objective Constraint. And when I think I've, yeah, I, I've written it um, in November. And when you read it now, it reads like a direct refutation of Bratton and, um, and his ilk even before I knew who the guy was. And this piece I refer to Marx's teaching of the fetish character of the commodity of money and capital, and I apply it to the fetish character, character of the coronavirus. So the, the argument is this. In a world that is totally administered by the law of value, there is no such thing as nature, as pure, unmediated reality, or what Breton calls the sphere of the real you know, there is no such thing as a reality coming upon us that is not already mediated through social and hence very variable relations. So to treat COVID as an objective constraint is therefore the same as when some um, ideologues of neoliberalism say the profit principle is an objective constraint. You know, we just can't help but be in this game. You know, our hands are tied. We must obey this principle of accumulation. And this is, of course, ideology. This is the purest manifestation of ideology. So for Marx, the commodity was not a thing, but a particular social relation. And you could say it was the result of particular relations of productions. And these are, of course, the relation between capital and labor. And in this sense, the coronavirus too is, of course, also the result of particular relations of production. It is conditioned by the way humans have socially involved, evolved. It is conditioned by capitalism, by the capitalist um, relations of production, which includes the way the very surface of the earth is shaped, the growth of mega factories, the increase of poverty and slum-like situations next to rich mega cities, I don't know, mass farming, industrialized medical experimentation, and so on. And why is it so difficult to see? Why is this so difficult to, to realize for most people, including Button? This is neatly explained by Marx in the, in the first, um, first volume of, of Capital, where, he, where Marx says, and I quote, the mysterious character of the commodity form consists therefore simply in the fact that the commodity reflects the social characteristics of men's own labor as objective characteristics of the products of labor themselves, as the socio-natural properties of 
things, right? This is the theory of fetish and this is the theory of reification. So what are in fact social characteristics appear because they cannot appear in any other way uh, as things, as objective constraints. They attach themselves to this phenomenal form. So, but the point is not to say so much that the coronavirus itself is not a natural phenomenon. I mean, I, I'm at this point, I'm agnostic about that. The main point of my argument in this article and also of my refutation of Breton's theory is that everything in response to the virus is mediated through the social relations between humans, you know, because we live in a capitalist society and capitalist states with a specific function you know, that have a fundamental interest in not only maintaining their own power, but taking, as Klaus Schwab puts it, you know, WF Klaus Schwab, every window of opportunity to increase their power and also wealth, there is no such thing as the sphere of the real that is not already within the framework of this capitalist social metabolism. So Breton is terrifyingly naive in this. He explicitly views the concept of life as biological, natural, pure, and detached from social relations. And there's, um, there's a neat quote directed against uh, Agamben where he says, these processes, uh, you know, life uh, processes, proceed regardless of the power of social rituals to organize them. So he completely puts forward a detached um, version of vision of life, which is detached from social relations that's embedded in. So, so he, he believes we must install a biopolitical paradise for technocrats, which is, <laughs> to be honest, equally a terror regime against people because he entirely lacks a concept of capitalist society and especially capitalist state. The state is not a neutral agent. And I keep saying this again and again, because this is such a failure on the left, on the, on the uh, contemporary left, to, to um, realize that uh, in their politics, the state is not a neutral agent, and you cannot expect the state to be serving the interests of the people. This is social theory 101. And the left has really forgotten about that. You cannot watch the spectacle of the dissolution of civil rights and the crushing of workers' interests for 40 years and think, yeah, you know, but what they do with corona is totally in the interest of the people, right? This is, this is madness. No, it's not in the interest of the people. It's in the interest of capital. And the corona regimes establishing themselves everywhere are in this so-called window of opportunity for the greatest restructuring of accumulation in modern history. And this is something that completely escapes Breton. He has absolutely, this is absolutely beyond this, this, this reified view of society that Breton has. Yeah. I, I thought it was uh, the way in which he presents biology as this undeniable objective fact that everyone is subject to like we can't escape biology mm -hmm. you can you know no matter your class no matter your race no matter all these different signifiers uh, biology in the final analysis is what we must all bow down to and this pandemic mm -hmm. has proven so i thought that that argument was very similar to what feminists uh, advance as well but with with mm -hmm. uh, sex instead of just general biology so they say you know there's there's sex 
um, that binds women uh, from all classes together in this social group called women. Oh, yeah. And, um, you know, so I think at the end of the day, what Brandon is really doing here, in addition to what you're saying. But Leila, this is the hallmark of bourgeois. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Reification. Reification. So Mark's theory, sorry to say again and make do a little self-promotion, but I've just, you know, I've published um, a huge book on Marx and it's called Value Without Fetish. And I, I really, I talk about this is what Marx theory in a nutshell comes down to. This is a critique of this fetishization of so-called objective constraints. This is exactly what, what you say also with relation to feminists and, and the objectification of, of sex, you know. This is a hallmark of bourgeois thinking. Yeah, it's, I think, you know, functionally speaking, it works to obscure class distinction and to obscure the reality of, of, of yeah. class domination, um, which is certainly what this book does. Uh, and one of its political results is to do that, is to obscure the fact that we do live in a class-dominated society and to pretend as if there's some social solutions that are just objectively uh, good and lack any and, and can be applied without any class bias because they're just, you know, quote, the right thing to do, just obviously the right thing to do. It's just science, you know? Yeah, exactly. No, he has no concept of society at all. So um, we're far from, he's very far from even thinking, you know, in, in terms of class, you know, this is, um, this is so many steps away from, from making that realization that we live in a class society. And I don't think that the term class even appears once in his book. I don't think, no. I don't think I've found yeah. it. It's, it's really. Yeah. He does absent. talk about at one point, um, just uh, a certain group of people who are able to uh, shield themselves from having to interact with the virus and still maintain their ability to work. Um, and he has a bit of a rubric, like a rubric where you either have to work and have to get uh, exposed to the virus or you can not work and not get exposed to the virus. So basically he just breaks people down into like these four quadrants in relation to whether they can get exposed yeah. to the they need to get exposed to the virus or not. But, um, but okay, so maybe one thing. So I, I think though we can all agree uh, so that there are some certain truths about this virus that are, do precede our our subjectivity, right? I, would that be a fair statement to say, you know, we can, for instance, using the scientific method, um, assess how deadly this virus is? Um, so how does this re how does that relate to uh, this concept of Braden uh, about like how how can we answer his his notion of how we can't, we can no longer ignore the the objective reality, and um, we need to subsume our subjectivity to these kind of truths. Because I, I I would say there are some truths that exist. Like I, I think that there is a truth about climate change, which we can ascertain. You know, so called climate change. Um, there is a there are various truths that I've um, used to make decisions for my own life with regards to this virus. So how do, how do, how would what would a Marxist approach I guess be to processing these kinds of truths and how does it relate to people's subjectivity which I don't think anyone here is ready to deny but certainly um, it's not just a bunch of subjectivities existing individually right from our perspective 
No, I, you know, I want to I want to come back to this question when we talk about uh, individuality later. But what I want to say or repeat is that this is not a question. This is not a dispute about whether objective reality exists or not, because we're on the same page here. You know, hard as it is to say, this is about how we interact with one another. Mm. Should we treat each other as ends in ourselves? You know, mm. uh, uh, you know. Um, Selbstzweck would be the German word. Or shall we treat each other, and that's Bratton's vision, as means to an end? And this is a this is a, a, a Kantian question. You know, this is a philosophical question and also a political question because it concerns ethics. You know, and and so there's a, there's a strong difference between oh, is objective reality exists or not? Of course, it exists. Nobody denies that. But the question is how within this. Ob- so-called objective reality, which um, which is based on on certain um, economic processes that that we experience in our everyday lives. So class reductionism, this this famous accusation of class reductionism, is not a theoretical position, but that's that's a an objective and real uh, um, fact. You know, we, we are in fact reduced to our class position in our everyday lives because most of us have to sell the labor power in order to survive. This is the objective reality. Okay. But then the question is how do we treat each other within this objective mm, reality? Okay. And then Marx would have say something would have to say mm. something. And um, if you wanna if you want to get into this question now, I can also I would like to, I could I could go into this question right now if you want me to. Um, uh, like, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, if you're, if, if you, if you fancy. So the individual, the individual is not fake. Um, Marx was very enthusiastic about individuality and the individual. So what sense would a communist society make if the concerns of, of the individual were swept under the rug? You know, for Marx, the definition of society is this, it, consists society consists of the relations that individuals entertain you know of the relations between individuals not individuals but the relations Mm. between them and if those relations are determined by the law of value you have a completely different society than one based on the free association of men and women okay but this is not to be mixed up with Marx's critique of methodological individualism. This is something entirely else. This is the scientific view of bourgeois political economy. Mm. So methodological individualism takes the individual as a vantage point, the individual commodity, the individual commodity owner, you know, the individual capitalist, the individual worker, and so. But this is also where the story ends for bourgeois political economy. And what kind of social relations these individuals enter before something like the commodity of value appears at the surface of the scientific presentation is completely left in the dark. So in that sense, bourgeois and neoclassical political economy, they stay behind Marx in his explanation of the individual subject because Marx, in contrast to them, he can also explain where and how the idea of the individual first Mm. appeared. It is like everything mediated through the social relations he or she is embedded in. So Marx's theory is also a theory of the constitution of subjectivity and individualism. And this does not make the idea of the individual redundant, quite to the contrary. So what Marx envisions um, 
also very much in his in his political writing is is the is the free realization of that individuality through a free association mm -hmm. of men right in the production mm -hmm. process so um he does not reject individuality at all it's quite to the contrary he believes in the potential of humanity to realize freedom to achieve a free society freedom for the body you know of the body freedom of the intellect and most importantly self-realization of the individual as a species being and this is all absent from Bratton's book of course because he, he offers the, the complete opposite you know he wants the, the objectification of humans which makes him uh, a thinker in the tradition of uh, German fascism and national socialism. <laughs> well, before we go to that question, um, Alex, did you want to jump in on this at all? I wanted to just make reference to the fact that um, reading Bratton's talk about human beings as objects and you know that how that's a good thing, it actually mm -hmm. reminded me of uh, one of Canada's least favorite sons, Michael Ignatieff. Um, who 20 years ago <laughs> was writing articles calling for regulated torture. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> saying that, uh, that the, the new, the new way, um, cause he was a big supporter of the, of the Bush era war on terror. Um, that, that this had to involve like literally like, uh, physical, co physical compulsion, physical coercion of the recalcitrants, uh, including mm -hmm. torture. And reading Bratton's screed, um, mm -hmm. I was very much reminded of that because mm -hmm. essentially it's using exactly the same set of logic and also supporting really exactly the same kind of society. But also yeah. just further to the point about like what kind of society this would mean, um, what Bratton's doing, whether he knows it or not, is he is reflecting a certain desire within the um, – what I would call the sort of the Anglosphere, but also probably most of the major European ruling classes, um, who there is a logic at work in like capitalism as it stands at the moment, whereby there, as I mentioned in the previous set, in our previous section of the discussion, like the logic of the last 30 years has been towards not only ever greater authoritarianism, but also ever greater regulation of the working class by the state. Um, yeah. As... Uh, as we go into a, a sort of higher stage of what Lenin re uh, described as state monopoly capital, the state is more and more unused to impose harsher and harsher discipline upon labor. And it's almost yeah. as if Bratton is prefiguring, whether he knows it or not, the move of capital when the next recession comes. Um, yeah, exactly. And that that's what they that's what they're getting ready for. Each time there has been any kind of cri any kind of crisis in the last 30 years, this regime has intensified itself. And because there is we don't even have the very limited ability of like the the trade unions in the period like 45 to 85 in British terms to resist any of that every time it gets worse and like every time you get a yeah. a useful idiot like Bratton who by his own admission like I think came out of like the boomer as he describes himself left mm -hmm. ends mm -hmm. up like embracing like um technocracy believing in the false dichotomy between the state and the market like he swallowed all of the Reagan exactly. Thatcher stuff him, completely and to him the state is neutral and uh, to him I, it's I think good yeah, it's good, but because it can be used for for such fantastic uh, propositions as as positive biopolitics, and so no. But I want to say, 
I think it's, it's a symptomatic writing. So he's not like, um, he's not fully aware, I think, of what you just said, though this is an absolutely accurate analysis. I think it's just like you have to look at the symptoms uh, of his writing as a symptom of a certain yeah, regression of, 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 of the left. And I mean, hello, this book was put out by Verso, Okay, Verso, who put out, um, who published uh, Alan Mason's Wood and and I don't know Adorno translations and from actual Marxists, and then he, they put out this, yeah, proto-fascist. Yeah, Verso, very much a product of '68, originally New Left books. Yeah. Um, so, and this is where they've ended up. Okay, so this is the question I was dying to ask you. So you very uh, mm -hmm. provocatively stated on Twitter that. Benjamin Braddon is a fascist. You just mentioned not the Nazis uh, a few minute, moments ago. So can you expand on why you think that Benjamin Braddon is a fascist? <laughs> yeah, well, what is a fascist? A fascist is someone who holds fascist views, okay? And I've already mentioned a few of those that, that Braddon holds, um, most prominently the objectification of humans, treating humans as objects, the enthusiastic response to authoritarianism, the social Darwinism, the disregard for the Nuremberg Codex. But um, let me digress a little here. Um, if you scan through the actual documents, the original documents of Nazi mm -hmm. Germany, especially the Office of Racial Policy, which was a department of the NSDAP, the Nazi party, you come across the writings of a certain Günther Hecht. Uh, he was one of the chief ideologists for um, race hygiene and all of these things. And he wrote an essay called Alcohol and Race Politics, which appeared alongside a documentation of a NSDAP convention of 1939. And he says, and I quote, for decades, our people, the German people, have been told by Marxists and Jews, your body belongs to you. But irreconcilable with this Jewish Marxist view is the Teutonic German idea that we are the bearers of the eternal leg legacy of our ancestors and that accordingly our body belongs to the clan and the people. End of quote. So I want to thank my friend Jan Steiner for bringing this, this passage to my attention. So according to this Nazi theorist, Günther Hecht, the body belongs to the state, mm -hmm. okay? And that is, this is indeed the fundamental principle of fascist politics, that the body no longer belongs to the individual. You know, there is no such thing as bodily integrity, bodily autonomy, but it belongs to the state, the clan, the people, whatever they call it. So think of the view of women in the in the childbearing age during that mm -hmm. time. And that's why you have both in the German and in the Japanese fascist traditions the central concept of the national body, the Volkskörper, which is the German term, or the Kokutai, which is the Japanese term for the same thing. It literally means surrendering your bodily autonomy to the state, women to give birth, men to fight in wars, yeah, like both sacrificing themselves to this higher abstract good. And this is indeed, I would say, the blueprint version of biopolitics. And it's not so different, you know, from, from what Bratton contends. He, he, he poses as an anti-right-winger, but in fact he advocates for this 
for this really fascist line of politics. So just a side note here, when the German government installed new regulations for the Infection Protection Act with regard to COVID this year, and it's still in force now in Germany, the first thing they abolished was bodily autonomy, which is otherwise guaranteed in the basic constitutional law. So that means not only that the police can body search you and harass you, the police can enter your home, it can arrest you, and if necessary, it can torture you. This is a, a, a so-called Infection Protection Act, which is still in force. And I don't think it's confined to Germany. I mean, this is daily reality in, in Australia now. Um, think of the tear gassing, you know, of, 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 of uh, the protests and, uh, you know, kids for not wearing masks, which is completely, um, this is complete lunacy. But these people could never report the police to, to the law, to the state, because it is in the interest of, of the state precisely to interfere with one's sense of self. You know, this is really important to see that some of the achievements of, of you know, bourgeois, bourgeois democracy against feudalism and previous state societies uh, is the sense of self, you know. This is the um, the first step also for emancipation. And what people like Breton do, he steps away from even this very marginal, very, very rudimentary um, um, achievement, you know, for, for towards progress, towards emancipation, the sense of self, the sense of, you know, uh, um, bodily integrity. And do not forget that the worst authoritarian regimes use torture as a political means and I recommend everybody to read um, Jean Amery's book on torture he, that he wrote after his experience um, at the hands of, 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 of the Nazis. Oh, okay. And I think this is totally within the framework of Breton's intervention. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually think that your answer is quite compelling. I, I thought that you were trolling, but it's actually a pretty well-developed answer here, uh, position. Um, Alex, did you have anything to say on this? I I'll just I largely agree with what Elena's argument is there. Actually, it's much it's actually much more compelling than I thought it would be. Um, but what Bratton reminded me of um, was also figures from the the Nazi period, like um, Walter Halstein, um, who was uh, a not only a, a member of the Nazi Party but also like went on to become the uh, first president of the European Commission. And I mentioned Halstein because he was um, basically a, a lawyer, a technocrat, and he, along with a lot of others, not only in Germany, but across like most of the European bourgeoisie, um, started to move towards pro-fascist positions in the 1920s and 30s, uh, mm -hmm. scared by the rise of the Soviet Union, frightened by their own working class, but also out of a concern to impose a kind of undemocratic um, technocracy over what they regarded as a, an anarchic um, set of um, relations within the state and more widely. And they saw like Mussolini's fascists, Hitler's Nazis, Franco's um, military fascist regime, not in the in the way that like um, Hitler or Mussolini would have understood like the eternal soul of Germany or Italy or something like that, but as a chance to impose this kind of like technocracy uh, on the working class, as a chance to really um, impose 
what they would regard as labor discipline and order. Mm-hmm. And that's the kind of thing that I was reminded of when reading Bratton. Yeah. Like this yeah. is the kind of guy who would go along with that kind of regime where if it comes up, because they're going to argue in the same way that people like Halstein would have argued, um, we've got to impose order on the chaos. And yeah. this is the way of doing <laughs> exactly. it. Yeah. So, yeah. Elena, I know that you might have to go. Um, or did you, did you have time for one more question? We can, we can do one more question. How about the conspiracy Perfect. Theory? Okay. All right. So, Braden absolutely hates anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, anti-lockdown people. Um, I think that we'd identify with a few of those labels. I definitely would. Um, he calls them. <laughs> uh, he calls them all conspiracy theorists. Um, so I guess the question is: Are we conspiracy theorists? And is being a conspiracy theorist bad? Yeah. So don't forget Marxists. That Breton really hates Marxists, <laughs> as we know, <laughs> uh, and and populists. Uh, he has quite a rage for populists as well, which is again really interesting for an author writing for Verso. Anyway, um, so about uh, so-called conspiracy theory. So yeah, I think yeah, conspiracy theory is bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's bad and lazy thinking. Um, but the question is, of course, what is this conspiracy theory, right? <laughs> if saying that the pandemic is this window of opportunity for total social control and compliance, you know, crushing the interests of workers, whether that is a conspiracy theory, you know, it's it's been so in the open and, and, and I don't think it is. A conspiracy theory. It, it is, you know, everybody can have access to the documents by the WEF, to talks that Klaus Schwab is giving, the balance sheets of Amazon and Google, of Pfizer and medical manufacturers. So it's not a secret. And interesting, there was also the the topic of my last um, Substack, and um, and I said it like that. I quote just a little piece, a little passage from my last Substack. I said critics of COVID authoritarianism, and I think um, this would be us, we always emphasize that the facts are plainly visible. You know, there is no shady cabal pulling strings behind curtains. Neoliberal capital's hard economic interests and its denial by Schwab and others is proof of its continuing relevance. So these economic interests are advertised, even, you know, by the WF and its billionaire entourage. They practically rub it into your face. Addressing and criticizing it would be basic fucking common sense in a world that would be that that's not lacerated by the neoliberal authoritarian fangs that the left has developed over the last years. So I wrote this 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 piece apropos the historian Quinn Slobodian, who insisted in an article for The Guardian that the Great Reset was not real. And to me, this is this is hilarious. Um, this would be like saying, you know, capitalist society is not real. Capital, the idea that we live in a capitalist society is 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 a conspiracy theory. <laughs> you know, so, so those who think that the reality of a given situation is not real, they are to me the real <laughs> conspiracy theorists. And and. Mm-hmm. That would be the real revenge of the real on those who deny COVID authoritarianism. Yeah. I mean, Edward Snowden, of all people, he put this he put this succinctly when he said, "The worst conspiracies are in plain sight." You know, and if we just check the facts, 
40% of low-income Americans have lost their job due to the pandemic in the first three months of 2020 alone. This is not a conspiracy theory. You know, you can read this in a report from the Institute of Policy Studies, and which also says, I quote, the planet's the planet has 2,365 billionaires, and they have seen their wealth increase by 4 trillion US dollars, or 54% during the pandemic year. Their combined wealth rose from 8.04 trillion to 12.39 trillion dollars between March 18th, 2020 and March 18th, 2021. And we are talking about private wealth here, not about how much their companies make. This is not a conspiracy theory, mm -hmm. you know. This is this these are facts. And the denial of this kind of reality, this will come back to us as the actual revenge. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I the most frustrating thing about this book to me was that he and I think this was mentioned in one of the reviews that you mentioned, uh, The Revenge of the Unreal. Something I'll link to it in mm -hmm. the show notes, that review and also your article on your Substack. Um that um, he he says that non-scientists and non-experts cannot properly assess the world. And so we have to just leave it to the experts to tell us what to do in a situation like this pandemic. Yeah. But then he's writing a book on on science, like he, he essentially like he he's making and he never questions like this, this approach, this like contradictory approach ever in his book. Uh, mm -hmm. But he just. It's so frustrating to me um, th that that whole the whole thing where he's like, you know, these are just the facts, you know, these are just the the facts. Mm -hmm. But there's so, you know, science itself is riven with um, contention, and scientists are saying different things about various various things. And so there's obviously mm -hmm. something going on there. There's obviously um, some class contradiction uh, within science, and some uh, contra contradiction. Uh, just generally within science that might have mm -hmm. someone, even a non-scientist, you know, start to question the inconsistencies. And we've seen just like so blatant inconsistencies with regards to so many of these things. Doesn't that raise some questions? Yes. You know, the thing is that um, I've talked to people and I, and I pointed out these inconsistencies and then they say, you know, but people can change their minds when, <laughs> you know, when the evidence changes. Yeah. yeah. You know, you don't. I don't think so much the evidence changes, but maybe the the monetary interest behind you know behind selling masks changes. Yeah. So, um, and this is something. Bratton has no concept of society. I mean, this is the one thing, the only thing you have to know about the book if you want to read it. And and and, um, I mean, read it and make up your own mind. But what I'm saying is, if you know that, if you realize that at a very, very early point on, then there is no point in talking about, you know, this expert class and how it perceives of the ex this clarity. You know, this it has no point. It's, it's it's interesting to me, but this has is directly linked to his to his being in love with authoritarianism. You know, because he wants somebody to tell him what to do. Mm. There's this. You really need to have this a psychoanalytical view also of the book, I guess. Uh, and um, yeah, yeah, it's true. Also, he talks about a gambon. Sorry, yeah. um, I only have a little time left, but I would like the. You know, he he doesn't even engage with a gambon's argument. He is. It is so interesting. It was it was my favorite chapter of the whole book where he talks about gambon, and 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 it's a complete ad hominem. 
It's an ad mm. hominem, which is not a valid argument in argumentation theory, if you, if you of know. Of course. I mean. So on the basis of what does he denounce a gamble? He says we should not trust Agamben's judgment and his, you know, Agamben put forward this really radical critique of 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 um, the COVID regime and COVID authoritarianism. And I have to say, I've come to appreciate Agamben since his pandemic writings a lot. You know, he's a fearless, direct critic, and he's saying how it is and actually doing the job of a philosopher as a social critic, unlike most of other people. Mm. You know, but so Breton. Um, Bratton says we should not trust uh, Agamben's judgment because, and I quote, Agamben had advised Jean-Luc Nancy, a French philosopher yes. and friend, not to listen to the medical doctors who recommended a heart transplant and that if he had listened to him, he, Jean-Luc Nancy, he would have been dead. End of quote. So on this basis, we should not trust what Agamemnon had to say about the rise of the authoritarian COVID regime. This is like saying we cannot trust Marx on what he had to say about capitalism because Marx was chronically poor. Okay, <laughs> the first thing has nothing to do with the left. You know, this is this is a complete, and he does not engage with with this argument. He he quotes passages from Agamemnon's writings, and then he says. From where does this language come from and why is it so ready at hand? But he never answers the question. Mm. And then he, and then he um, of, course, of course, he smears Agamben and he does what every leftist intellectual today does. Like in the Pavlovian reflex, he pulls out the fascist blackmail card and says about Agamben, and I quote, it is not surprising that Agamben earned the thanks of both Liga Nord and the anti-masker, anti-vaccine movements. You know, it's like... What does this have to do with Agamemnon's argument? Nothing, right? Nothing. People don't understand that anymore because the only self-imposed task of leftist intellectuals, and I think Breton would still identify with the left, is to denounce one's opponents. I think this is something that Alex has been pointing out and you have been pointing out through this, um, through the Red Star Radio podcast so many times. And it's, you know, it can't be emphasized enough that the left has no political vision anymore. There is no politics. It's, it's, it's a complete depolitization of the complete uh, of of the of the argument of the debate of the discussion. It is just about denouncing your opponents. There is no argument, no analysis. No, um, you know, even even self doubt in some way. Yeah, you know? or trying to get them fired if that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. But yeah, they all follow the same playbook. Um, I mean, I, I think because um, you know, if if they had great, if they had a compelling political argument, um, you would need to create a compelling political argument that would appeal to the mass of people, to the proletariat, but they don't write for those people. They don't think for those people, right? Mm -hmm. They think for, for, for yeah. capital. And so, as you said in your, in your excellent um, article reviewing, well, partially reviewing this book, partially talking about other, uh, about the vaccination campaign, you said um, that, you know, in the final analysis, the capital has always resorted to coercion to put forward its its mm -hmm. political projects. And I think that this is quite reflected in leftist thinkers who are, I would say, just the intelligentsia of the left wing of capital and nothing more. Yeah. yeah. All right, well, 
Uh, Melina, thank you so, so much for coming. I so much enjoyed hearing your... your thoughts on this book uh <laughs> I, I i hope you do i hope you do co- come back to twitter i know it's um it's a it's a bit of a uh a wild west out there but your fans do miss you That's you cool. do miss you on twitter <laughs> <laughs> yeah i know i know i'm eventually coming back at some point and yeah it was great talking to you and uh, thank you for having me on then talk soon yeah. okay thanks elena thank you so much bye bye bye
Elena Lang, Dr. Elena, <clears throat> Dr. Elena Lang is a senior lecturer and researcher at the University of Zurich. So Dr. Elena Lang is a senior researcher and lecturer of Japanese studies at the University of Zurich and a repeat uh, guest of the show. Very happy to have her back. <laughs> 